Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with The Game Changer, and we are so excited to have you joining us today. We have a topic that I suspect is near and dear to all of your hearts, and that is the ability to have remarkable conversations. And we're going to be talking about that within the context uh, of a book called Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations. And the author of the book is Paul Axtell. Paul, did I uh, pronounce that right? You did very well. (laughs) <laughs> well, good. I usually ask that before we start the show so that I don't stumble, but I'm glad to hear I did well. Uh, Paul, where are you coming from today? I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it's raining, so oh. it's a good time to be on the radio. Well, that's better than snow. <laughs> that would be true. Well, I I am uh, here in Tampa, Florida, and it is another glorious day. Uh, so this time of year, we're starting to have the afternoon rain showers, but we very rarely have, you know, overcast days that, you know, kind of just pour on the rain all day long. Well, you're blessed to have sun every day. <laughs> Well, 330 days of sunshine is what they promise in in the marketing materials for the state of Florida, and most most years we do pretty well. So, Paul, let's before we start talking about your book, I want to hear about you, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, and you can go back just as far as you would like. Wow, that's a pretty generous offer. Um, <laughs> so, I was born and raised in South Dakota. I'm a uh, chemical engineer by training, Uh, later got an MBA at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, So I'm a manufacturing engineering person at heart. I worked for Monsanto for 25 years, mostly in manufacturing engineering. Uh, I left and started my own company maybe 20 years ago. Time goes Mm. by, so it's been a while. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, I've been out on my own 20 years too, so it does go by fast. It does. Um, I'm married to uh, Cindy. Uh, Cindy worked as an executive at John Deere for 35 years, so we've got a pretty uh, strong corporate background I'm basically a trainer, though. I basically do two, three, four-day training programs on personal effectiveness and management teams. So I'm more of a trainer than I am a writer. I'm certainly not a meeting facilitator, per se, um, but very typically people want to know how, 
how to make meetings better. So that kind of comes up in training. Well, absolutely. Uh, and and anybody who has spent any time in corporate America knows how much time is wasted in conference rooms. And you know, I used to joke with uh, CEOs when they would would hire me, you know, to help them grow and improve their performance. And I would say, well, first of all, go lock all of your conference rooms for one full day and see what happens to your people because they won't be able to function, right? Because meetings are such a part of the culture of companies and not always a good one. No, and often it takes a bold move, just as you described, for people to say, you know, let's take this on, let's do something about it. It's also interesting that if you get a list of leadership competencies from most companies, Meeting skills aren't a competency, <laughs> and somehow we think that people just intuitively know how to do that. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I've never seen a well-run meeting unless people have been trained first. Right. Well, and it's funny how everything expands to fill the time of the meeting. And and uh, you know, if if culturally, a one-hour meeting is the norm. Or you see it even in conference calls, like when, when I set up a call with people, um, I have now taken to putting a, a, uh, an icon on my emails and on my website that allows people to schedule a 15-minute meeting with me, right? And, and it throws people off because they can't figure out how to be concise enough <laughs> to actually get the job done. And, you know, I've worked with companies who we had them switch their meeting times from starting at the the top of the hour to meetings have to start at 10 minutes after the hour. And again, just that jolt of doing things differently makes people think. It does, and the points you make are pretty good. I mean, it's the same way about uh, work-life balance. If you draw a line in the sand, which basically says, I'm not going to do any work after 5.30 p.m., you immediately have to get better during the day. Versus if you know you could spend two hours on email when you get home, then you can kind of waste a lot of time during the day. So, yeah, absolutely. Also, there's something about mm -hmm. residual distraction, and if you book meetings back-to-back-to-back, people are still preoccupied with the meeting they just came out of while you start the next meeting. So. Yeah, and every time, you. you know, I go I go long periods of time without consulting because I'm I'm also starting up a, a technology company, and as I mentioned uh, before we got on the air, I, I've just written a book and am, am launching, you know, kind of some organization and new new products around that. Um, but when I do consult, the thing that always strikes me is when do people ever get work done? And you're absolutely right. You know, they condition themselves to work at home at night, and then they don't have the work-life balance, and then their marriage starts to crater, and then their performance at work goes down, and it's a vicious, vicious cycle. So what prompted you to come up with this structure of these eight strategies? And and was this something that you were just using in training, and you just thought, hey, why don't I write a book? Or did somebody approach you uh, to publish the book? Well, if I still have permission to go a long ways back, <laughs> of course. This is I your came out of uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, I was probably the stereotypical guy engineer introvert and didn't pretty much speak in life. 
actually got through high school without having a date. You know, I would, I think texting, I could do it. <laughs> Face-to-face rejection, just I couldn't handle. But I got to work for Monsanto. I had a wonderful first boss named Kurt Frank. After five weeks, he came into my office on Friday afternoon and said, Paul, you know, I've been in with meetings with you maybe 15, 20 times. You haven't spoken yet. That's unacceptable. And beginning Monday, you are on 90-day probation for not speaking. Have a nice weekend. Uh-huh. And uh, then he came in on Monday morning, gave me the HR papers, 90-day probation for not speaking, and he said, look, anytime you and I are in the same meeting, if you don't speak twice, at the end of the day, you'll be fired. And so even though I knew not speaking in life um, didn't work, not only within a family, but it clearly at work. Kurt was the first person who said, you really, you got to get this taken care of. So that started a long process wow. of paying attention in conversation, speaking. And it actually started with the large process steps, decision-making, problem-solving, strategic planning. Uh, and then it carried over to just a, I would say, a number of themes Number one, and themes are perspectives that kind of altered, I think, my view of life. And one of them is conversations all you've got to have life turn up. It's how you raise kids. It's how you build a reputation in an organization. It's how you get work done in an organization. And one insight in particular about working in an organization is it's not drive that will set people apart. It's not passion that will set them apart. It's not knowledge that will set them apart. The only thing that set people apart is the ability to convene a group of people, manage that conversation such that progress is made both during the meeting and after the meeting. And we're simply not telling people you've got to get good at managing conversations, whether it's with your kids, with your partner in life, or colleagues. So that's pretty much how I got my beginning from not speaking to Boy, this is just a missing skill set across the board. Wow. Well, you know, thank you so much for your transparency and sharing that because clearly you have come a long way from from those beginnings uh, to doing a radio show about a book about conversation, right? right? And who would have ever thought that that would have been, uh, and I know this isn't your first book, but, but that that was the book that that was going to uh, come out of this quiet, introspective guy. And it's funny, and I don't remember the name of the book, but there was a woman that we interviewed, gosh, it must be five or six years ago, and she wrote this book about how introverts behave in companies and and how those of us who are extroverts you know, tend to walk all over the introverts, but how important the introverts are to the company. I'll, I'll have to dig that out and, and send you a link to it because it was one of my favorite interviews of all time um, because I realized, because I'm on the other end of the spectrum, of course, right? You know, I can talk right. about anything. And, and I didn't realize how my behavior made the introverts feel, right? Because I didn't think less of them. But, you know, absent somebody talking, I'll fill the void, right? Well, yeah, and it's a powerful way to look at um, all conversations are basically a dance. 
and you and I are simply responding to the other person. And so if you have somebody like yourself who's very talkative, it's pretty easy for me to just shift into a listening mode and not take turns leading. So, yeah. Right, right. Well, let's let's dive right into uh, the strategies. And first of all, tell me who your audience really is for this book. If, if you had to, to pick, you know, one set of, of people who were going to walk by your book on the bookshelf or, or, you know, search for a topic on Amazon, who did you hope would read this book? Well, great question. I think I would have titled it differently. I think I would have titled it Life 101, um, looked at through the lens of meetings. But I would say the number one audience is the young professional who's working in a university or an organization and needs to get that influence is pretty much all being able to handle yourself in conversations, whether that's one-on-one or larger group. Um, because once you are, once you master your core discipline, whether that's IT or accounting or engineering or sales, then it's really your ability to handle yourself in conversation that will set you apart and give you influence skills. So I think it's the young, new to the organization. If you look at a narrow audience, first-time supervisors, we're giving very little help to people who have maybe one of the most toughest jobs in the organization is the first-time supervisor who all they're doing is you can't motivate people. All you can do is talk to your people, get them engaged, and get work done. So I think that would be the best audience, which should be the zero- to ten-year employee who are transitioning from individual contributor to supervisor, manager. Hmm. You know, and it, it's funny, I've got um, a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old, and I, I look at their generation and wonder uh, how they are ever going to function in corporate life because they don't learn the art of conversation um, and because they do rely so much on texting. Um, you know, somebody was commenting, my, my daughter uh, is hoping to get um, – accepted into a five-year master's program at the University of Warsaw in Poland. And they're like, oh, she's going to be going so far away. And I thought, you know what? Most of my conversations with her, she's sitting up in her room, and we're texting back and forth, and I'm <laughs> down the stairs. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and in order to get into the program, she's going to have to go through an interview process on and on Skype, obviously, because she she's not going to fly over just for that interview. But um, anyway, so I, I think you're spot on in saying that it, you know it's it's really the younger people, and I mean I think about all of the people who are dysfunctional, right? Who've spent 20 and 30 years in corporate life and still don't know how to behave in a, a meeting, and clearly they can benefit too. Well, let's dive right into the the first strategy, and, and this is all about choosing your perspective. Talk to us about that. Well, if you think about perspective, Dr. Phil would say it's your attitude, but it's the way you're thinking about something, the way you walk into a meeting. It's your point of view, how you relate. That actually turns out to be the most important thing about being a human being. 
And William James, American philosopher, said, you know, the beauty about being a human being is you can change your mind. And if we put that in practical terms, it means anytime you're not looking forward to something, find a new perspective. And it's one reason why we do meeting skill training. And it doesn't change anything because tactics and strategies will fall by the wayside if people aren't coming in thinking in the right way. So if we kind of look at the perspective, and one of the things is conversation creates perspective. So if you look at all the, this is maybe overstating it, but whining that people do about meetings, it leaves them with the perspective that we have too many meetings and they are not a good use of my time. Well, so right there we've got to start by leadership saying, you know what, meetings is how work gets done here and we need to get good at it. So let's change the perspective to meetings matter. From the point of view of the person who calls the meeting, it's got to be, I'm responsible for the time and talent in this room, and it's my job not to disrespect that. Right. And then three, from the individual point of view, choose to own, take ownership for every meeting you're in, whether it's your meeting or not. So it's basically saying, I've got something to say about whether this meeting turns out or not. And just think about it. If everybody walked in with that perspective, the meetings will work. Um, if we just look at one piece of that, my sense is that most people walk into meetings with the following perspective about whether they speak or not. And it basically is, I'll speak if I feel like it. Well, how do you run an organization where people walk in with a perspective, which is, I don't have to speak if I don't feel like it? Right. That's just not going to turn out versus if I'm in the meeting, I'm the only person thinking about this topic with my background, my experience, my concerns, my interests. And if I don't speak, we lose that. Right. And, you know, I think it's also important to note since we've been talking about, um, you know, the um, – the individual who is just quiet by nature, right? And and quite right. often has the most to say in the room. And then there's the other thing that happens is the culture where someone says something and they're working for someone uh, who has no tact and diplomacy and, you know, calls their idea stupid or, or you know, kind of yeah. bats them down every time of, oh, you know, we've already discussed that or whatever. And and that that culture actually creates that that quietness. But the, you're you're absolutely right that the perspective that each person brings to the table, um, you know, is so different from their peers. And just because we are all created, you know, so uniquely, um, and and it is so important to bring that out. So as we move on uh, to strategy number two, here you talk about mastering effective conversation. And and clearly this is the most important thing once you do decide to speak up. Um, how do people learn that when we haven't necessarily been taught it, uh, you know, as, as a part of our, our secondary education or even our primary education? Well, that's a great question. I think if one gets interested in, uh, let's just put it in the category of speaking with impact. The first thing you just start to do is watch people who do speak with impact. 
who speak in such a way that people are just interested in following what they're saying, thinking about what they're saying. Uh, and so you start to build, as the observer, what works about speaking and what doesn't work about speaking. I think everybody's pretty much gifted at being able to express themselves if they feel like other the audience is actually interested in what they have to say. So right. probably the listening that's present, I would say two things impact whether people speak effectively or not. One is the quality of relationships that walk into the room. So you could say that the quality of the relationship between us that walks into the room determines the quality of the speaking. Yes. And you can see why five people in a meeting is much easier, much safer, and produces a higher quality conversation than 20 people because you're likely to have really powerful relationships with four or five people. The other is the quality well, and I, of attention. And I also, noticed, I also noticed that when a meeting, typically if a meeting has 20 people in it, you typically have two or three layers of management from a particular group, which means that the lower level people from a title perspective may not be sharing their perspective because of that dynamic. And so they're intimidated uh, from speaking their mind, right? Exactly. And that's why something else that's missing pretty much everywhere is the permission and freedom to call on anybody in a meeting. Somehow we've got this notion that people can't handle being called on and it puts them on the spot. <laughs> right. Um, but just think if you had that... I think you're absolutely right. You've got these different layers of management. And let's say you and I are in there as two managers. What if you and I gave each other permission to call on the people? I, you gave me permission to call on the people that work for you. And you give me permission to call on the people. Right. That would allow us to get all those people into the conversation we'd like to have into the conversation. Uh, that's a cultural thing. It pretty much starts at the top or with some right. respected manager says, look, I want to hear from everybody in this conversation, so let's just kind of set aside who works for who, and let's just have a great conversation. Right, right. Well, I do a significant amount of meeting facilitation, particularly with boards and advisory boards. Mm -hmm. And and one of the tools that, that I have been able to use in that environment actually comes out of um, improv theater, and it, sure. it actually came out of an interview that I did with a woman who wrote a book about, you know, using improv techniques in business, and that is a technique of going around the room, and you start with a particular topic, and the next person has to begin their sentence by saying yes and, and then building on it. And and it's a very, very powerful way to ensure that everybody is included without regard for position or, or even experience of, of discounting their perspective, you know, in, in some cases. So it, it seems to me that this leads right into strategy number three, which is creating supportive relationships. So those kind of behaviors that you're talking about of getting this uh, either spoken or unspoken permission to, to actually call on people that don't work for you, 
that creates that environment of support as long as the questions aren't asked in a, a demeaning manner, right? Absolutely. Now, if you think about creating relationships, and I actually think that people should be a lot more deliberate about creating their networks. Um, I think people should have a spreadsheet, and the minimum number of relationships would be 30 relationships that you could count on. And if you go higher in the organization, it might be 100, 200 relationships. And if you look at the historical ways we've created relationships by socializing together, being on company softball teams, playing golf, those are pretty much not available anymore because there's so many people who, at the end of work, they're going home. And so if you look at meetings from this perspective, which is maybe meetings are the primary place for you to create networks. So if you say, wow, that's my place, then I need to get there 10 minutes early, introduce myself to people I don't know, check in with people I haven't seen for a while. I need to book myself so that I can hang around 10 minutes later and ask a follow-up question to somebody. So if one person got the idea of, wow, I'm going to start using meetings as my source of developing my network, that also forces us to rethink how we schedule meetings. So if you take really? your idea of starting yeah. 10 minutes after the hour, yeah, but we'll be in the room for that first 10 minutes to network. Same way on virtual meetings, if you go back to this idea of relationships matter, Chickie, it's like, okay, you probably need to spend 10, 15 minutes at the beginning of a virtual meeting for people who are not present to catch up on their life. Yes. You need to schedule more time in the meeting so that there's adequate time for people to speak. So if we could displace the notion of you've got to talk about personal, not work-related things to connect with, now let's just get into a conversation work-related that we both care about. You'll get just as powerful relationship. I hope that makes sense. Yes. No, it, it, it definitely does. And, I, you know, I never thought about the concept of using meetings as you're networking. And, and that makes a great deal of sense. And having that motivation makes it way more important to listen. Oh, absolutely. Right? And and hopefully balancing that. And, and again, you find out uh, strategy number four is deciding what matters and who cares. And that has to start with listening, right? Or, ask, or learning how to ask the right questions to figure out what matters and who cares about that. So give us some insight on, on strategy number four. Well, let's start with the point you just made. I think traditionally people sit in meetings listening for what do I have to say about this topic. You could also choose to go and say what can I learn about the people who are in this meeting. With the target being if you knew four things about me that I would love to talk about, it's pretty easy to strike up a conversation later. So you could be in meeting listening for what can I learn about every person in the meeting as you kind of build that network. The idea about what matters and who cares, uh, if you have 20 people in the meeting, it's unlikely that everybody cares about every agenda item. Mm -hmm. 
And I think you've probably seen in those board retreats um, or in other top-notch meetings that once you get to have 20, 25 people in there, the amount of work that you can willingly take on in that group diminishes pretty quickly, and you end up having a smaller kitchen cabinet of people who do the real work. Yeah. Um, so, or it's why you I mean, break into small work groups, right? Yeah. So that that you can uh, get people working on what they care about and hopefully what what does matter long term to the company. Yeah. So if you just take that idea you just expressed, if we have a large group, the one things we're working against is how quickly can we get this described well enough that we can turn it over to a smaller group to do the work outside the meeting. That's the most critical piece for a large group. Otherwise, you're pretty much, all you can do is do information sharing, which really doesn't move an organization forward. Or you're planning the agenda for the next meeting. <laughs> right. Yeah, that yeah. one drives me crazy. <laughs> so if um, you think about it, just you want as few topics as possible, topics that really require the wisdom of the group and probably require at least 20 to 40 minutes of the group's time to do thorough work on. If you can cover it in 10 minutes, probably not a worthwhile topic. Yeah, and I, I think that discipline is what is really, really hard. Uh, you know, I mean, actually, the two things you mentioned, it's who who actually needs to be in the room. And one of the companies that I worked with, uh, we for, again, just a short period of time kind of to jolt things around, um, forced the person running the meeting to at least do a rough calculation of the cost of the meeting based on mm -hmm. the amount of time and, and the salaries of the people in the room and how many meetings it took to accomplish whatever it was they were trying to do, right? And the, and the numbers become absolutely astronomical. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think then figuring out uh, what the, the topics are, you're so right to say that people need to be trained to figure out what has to be done with the collective versus assigning responsibilities and just going and doing it. Yeah, I'm with you there. If you think about really powerful meetings, they generally fall into the camp of startup meetings. You know, like you have a new startup company starting and everybody meets for 15 minutes in the morning. It's what happened yesterday, what do we got to get done today, who's got it, okay, let's get to work. Yes. Where the back to an idea you had early on, which is let's just be focused, let's kind of press ourselves with respect to a sense of urgency, and let's just not sit down for an hour because we'll use the whole hour when, if we just force ourselves into 15 minutes, we can probably get clear about the day. Right. Well, then how do you take that same kind of thinking and apply it to a two or a three or an all-day meeting? Right. No, it's it's so true. And, and, and it really gets down to design. And, and strategy number five is all about designing each conversation that is going to have to take place. And I'm, I'm assuming here that a conversation doesn't necessarily mean 
a conversation between you know two people, but the conversation that has to happen around getting something accomplished. Well, it, in one instance, I would apply it to two people, and that is that if somebody's meeting with somebody, a higher-level manager, mm-hmm. I my uh, coaching to the lower-level person is design that meeting so that you can walk in and say, okay, here's what I'd like to talk about. Is there something you'd like to talk about? How about I manage the conversation so we end up where we want to be? Because the higher-level person probably hasn't got time to think about it before they get there. And they will be so impressed if somebody said, here's what I think we ought to talk about, here's where we're trying to get to, and here's what I'm looking for from you in the conversation. They'll just say, oh, absolutely, let's do it that way. Otherwise, I think design, um, do you like to cook? Yes, yes, I do. Okay. Well, you know, there's a lot of recipes that you've done a long time. You don't, you do that recipe without looking at the recipe. You kind of know it. You, you know, can throw a dash of this and a little bit of that. But if it's a new recipe or a difficult recipe dish that you're cooking, you really want a path to follow. Yes. So a lot of conversations, if you and I already know that conversation, the relationship is a good place, we don't need to think much about how we're going to have the conversation. Three or four people having coffee together and talking about something don't need to figure out how we're going to talk about it. A group of 20, you probably need to think about it. A complex emotional topic, you probably ought to think about how you want to approach it. I remember being asked to facilitate a meeting where 300 parents wanted a middle school principal fired. And so it was a meeting between parents, the principal, and the school district superintendent. You know, I spent hours making sure we had a process for doing that that would lead us through the conversation without, you know, big, big upsets. So, But for the most part, even if you just look at this radio interview, you and I have a basic plan about how we're going to do it. And most conversations would benefit from that. And clearly with 20 people, you should be more thoughtful than with three or four. So design basically says what's the underlying thinking that would provide us the best path for getting through this conversation. Right, but I, you know, I think it also leads into uh, strategy number six, which says that if you don't know the outcome that you're trying to get to, and and you suggest that you need to lead your meetings for three outcomes, that if you don't know the outcome that you want, you know, kind of then any path is going to take you there. You can you can use any format if you don't know where you're going, right, and what you want to accomplish. <laughs> and yeah. So, you know, we, we would all be in Alice in Wonderland there somewhere, uh, probably in a Johnny Depp version <laughs> where, where it was all bizarre. But um, a- anyway, so what what is the, the logic behind having three outcomes in mind? Well, it all goes against that background that if you call a meeting, you need to respect the time and talent in the room. But if I have you leading the meeting, I want your attention on three things. The first one is produce the agenda. Uh, If you do not make 
progress every time you meet. You do not accomplish what you intend to accomplish most times. Your sense of group, your sense of team, your sense of being effective, working together will fall apart. So the number one piece is produce the agenda, which basically means be clear about what's on the agenda, how long you're going to talk about, where you're trying to get to, and then stay on track. Most people would love if the people who led their meetings were rigorous about keeping the conversation on track, were rigorous about not letting people dominate the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing is produce what you say you're going to produce. The second is broad participation. Oh, several weeks ago, Chickie, there was a New York Times article about a Google survey where they looked at teams for three years and differentiate what were what allowed for successful teams versus unsuccessful teams. And there were, well, one factor was, did they actually produce between meetings? But the two in-time things that seemed to make a difference with respect to the powerful groups, successful teams, was number one, broad participation. And number two, psychological safety, such that everybody felt like they could say anything. So I think the second thing a leader needs to do is let's make sure we get broad participation. That means by holding some people back. That means calling on people. That means letting people know you want them into a conversation. Right. So broad participation would be the second thing. And then the third thing goes all the way back to the beginning. I think what sets people apart is their ability to run conversations like this. So I'd like the leader to always be working on something. I think... You'll agree with me that leaders who stand out are ones who are willing to be coached in front of others. They're ones mm-hmm. who are willing to be vulnerable about, hey, could you, Chicky, could you give me some advice about how I handle that question? If you want to change the culture of meetings, what would do it quicker than anything else is if the top people said, you know what, I'm working on my meeting skills and I've asked Chicky to observe me three times a week and give me feedback about how I lead meetings, which pulls into play another key idea about being effective. You and I are better when we're being watched in life. We do our yoga poses better when we're being watched. We interact with our grandkids better when we're being watched. You you will lead better meetings if you're being watched. Interesting. So that would be the three things. Produce the agenda, get broad participation, and always be at work on improving some part of how you lead meetings. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and strategy number seven uh, follows this with the notion of, you know, participate in meetings to add impact, not just to make noise, not just to be present, but actually to add impact. And, you know, that one is almost, uh, you know, it's so much of a given. It's like, you know, why would you even be there if you couldn't add an impact? So so what are the specifics of how can I add impact? What, How can I best add impact? Well, maybe the simplest is to check in with the person calling the meeting and offer to do whatever they need for the meeting to be better. Maybe it's take notes. Maybe it's keep track of who has spoken. Maybe it's keep track of commitments that are made. Um, Maybe it's take care of coffee. So if everybody would walk into a meeting 
and check in with the person leading the meeting and say, hey, is there anything I can do to help you make this meeting turn out? That would be a gift. Hmm. I think the other thing is that you always have a right to ask for what you need to be effective in a meeting. So if you need an agenda ahead of time on some topics, ask for that. If you need more time on a topic so other people who haven't been in the conversation yet can be brought into the conversation, ask for that. If you need more clarity around where we ended up at the end of a topic before we move to the next topic, ask for that. Then I think the third piece, you know, most of us walk into a meeting thinking about one person, that's ourselves. Where do I want to sit? Can I check my smartphone during this meeting? What if you walked in thinking, maybe I've got something to say about other people's experience of being in this meeting? If that's the attitude you walked in with, it would make a huge difference if you and I started looking out for other people in the meeting in addition to looking out for ourselves. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, and I think that's the hardest thing is, and getting back to, uh, you know, how we train our children to communicate. You know, I, I talk to my son about this all the time, that, that if if you go through life being self-absorbed, uh, which is kind of a natural thing when you're a 16-year-old yep. boy, right? And we were talking this morning on the way home from uh, today was his last day of school and, you know, his last exams. And, you know, he's decided that he would like a motorcycle. And so we were talking about what happens when you're riding a motorcycle and you behave in a self-absorbed manner, right? You open up yourself to a whole bunch of tons of steel around you that could potentially, like, hurl themselves into you. And, and you know, really the same thing can happen if you're self-absorbed in a meeting. And, you know, I think that that's where so much of the dysfunction comes, of people who walk into the meeting needing to impress someone, Maybe because of what happened in a previous meeting, right? And this is this is this whole, uh, and I don't even remember if this was in and uh, whoever wrote that book about the dysfunctions of a meeting, um, but but I think that that's one of the core ones is that people are either completely self-absorbed or they're trying to recover from something that happened in a previous meeting, and so they're talking just to you know to be heard or you know to sound smart, right? To establish credibility. Yep. And oh, you know, it, it it's it's sad and painful to watch. Yeah, and particularly because we know they're good people, they're committed yeah. people, they're loyal people. They've just got a conversational style that doesn't work, and nobody's told them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's be interesting. A really you know, one point. of the things um, that uh, I've been reading a lot about is the whole notion of intimacy and empathy. And uh, some people think that, you know, we raise little boys to play and compete and we raise little girls to be nurturing and supportive. And so women kind of have this whole notion of empathy kind of instinctively and guys got to learn it. And part of what you were just talking about kind of fits in that field. If I walk in and I'm self-absorbed and I'm playing the competing playing game, Mm -hmm. then my sense of being safe, being interested, being compassionate, probably not present. Exactly, exactly. 
So with with all of this in mind, you know, it, it seems to me that it all rolls up, you know, to to the ultimate strategy, strategy number eight, which is building remarkable groups. And and how do you do that? I mean, each one of these things that we've talked about are building blocks, but but what's the what's the recipe for building remarkable groups? Well, first of all, I think that we've got to get people to see that groups can be really, really special. And while we might have overused the whole word of teams, if you put a group together and they really connect and get really good at working together, the impact in an organization can be profound. And I have a simple kind of visual, which is you've got to be good when you're together, and you also have to be good when you're apart. For a group to be special, when you're together, number one, be productive and take care of each other. So this participation thing comes into that. Not being self-absorbed comes into that. So good when you're together. Have productive meetings that build relationships. And then good when you're apart. You've got to be productive between meetings. And there's something called the say-do ratio. So we come up with a list of action items in a meeting. If you want to be remarkable, 85% is your target. That is, the group needs to complete 85% of the action items developed in the meeting. Typical groups do 60%. So you've got to be productive during the meetings. And the other is take care of each other when you're apart, which means we've got each other's back. We manage each other's reputation. So if you that's a pretty simple model, but basically says let's have good meetings and build relationship while we're there, and let's be really good at being productive between meetings, but let's be on each other's side. That pretty much will get you there. Right, right. Well, and then then you give some practical, uh, you know, after talking about each of the strategies, you give some practical advice. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think you've chosen well in the words that you use here about the art of learning to be effective, which is one of the the practical tools that you offer, and it is an art um, because you know I, I think we're actually uh, the internet has proven that we're born to waste time, <laughs> and and the internet like allows us to do that magnified to the millionth degree. I can waste so much time. I mean, we're we're currently looking for a house, and I can tell you that. Realtor.com is a time suck, right? <laughs> and and I have I have spent the least effective week of my life because I get pulled in to doing things that don't allow me to be effective at what I really needed to do, and and um, so uh, the use of the word art there, uh, particularly from an engineer. I find interesting. So what what's your perspective on that? Was that by design that you chose the word art? Well, it was. And I was thinking of uh, Fred Astaire, uh, who basically said it took me 15 years to make it look easy. Mm. And, uh, and then the, kind of the humorous comment about Ginger Rogers, and she says, yeah, and I had to do it all backwards. Um, but I think um, the difference between conceptual knowledge and tacit knowledge, conceptual knowledge is here's the four steps how to do this, which is what 
people are drawn to. They want to download the five steps to being a bit better leader, the four steps to being yes. whatever it is. So we like steps, recipes. But look at the look at graciousness. There's not a recipe to become gracious. Gracious is what's called tacit knowledge, and it takes thousands of corrections. That was gracious. That was not. That was kind. That was not. <laughs> I love how you support your sister. I wish you'd be more supportive. So we haven't picked up on the skills that require awareness. And nobody's also told us what to pay attention to and build awareness for. And that's why some people say women have a real advantage in the field of technology because they were getting some of that was gracious, that was not, that was kind, that was not, that little boys weren't getting. So I think the point about awareness in the learning chapter is that any field, there's seven or less factors to pay attention to that will make you good at. I think you know that with respect to being a presenter. What are the seven things that allow you to be a good presenter? What are the seven things that allow you to be a good grandparent? What mm -hmm. seven things allow you to hit a golf ball better? And so if you kind of look at what I'm interested in is you, if you give me, let's go back to empathy, what are the seven things that people need to train themselves to see as either present or missing? And if you can train yourself to see it, um, so let's take humor quickly. Humor, for the most part in meetings, doesn't work. And I'm all for lightening up and having fun. But almost every time humor is used, it either changes the conversation or discounts the conversation or yeah. discounts the person who just spoke. And so if you start looking for that... If you spent two weeks saying, every time humor is being used, I want to look at, see what happened to the conversation and the person, eventually you'll train yourself to be able to use humor in a very powerful way and stop using it in a way that's discounting. Right. Or interrupting. Notice everybody who interrupts. Who interrupts who? And what happens to the conversation, the person who was interrupted? Right. And, you know, for years, um, I, I was an interrupter. And it took writing my thoughts down. Mm -hmm. And then when there was a lull in the conversation, seeing if it was still appropriate to voice whatever it was I wanted to voice. And... Uh, you know, I, I actually had to get sent to corporate charm school. And I, I was, you know, I had been a senior executive for years. Uh, you know, I'm, I work in the travel technology field, and I worked for two of the major companies in, in that arena. And, you know, fortunately, I had a mentor, uh, and he cared enough about me to say, look, you know, if you're going to make it uh, here, you really need to work on some of these things. And uh, so he sent me to an AMA program. It happened to be out in Carmel, California, you know, like overlooking the ocean. It was fabulous. And no one there could believe that I was being sent to corporate charm school because in a small environment with people I don't know, I could be quite charming, <laughs> right? But with people I know, 
you know, different dynamics were at play. Right. But I was always so grateful for him doing that because I think that lesson that I learned about writing down what I wanted to say and what seemed so burning that I couldn't wait for the other person to stop. Um, and then really working on listening because when all you're doing is waiting for there to be a lull so that you can say whatever you're going to say, then you're not listening to what's being said except for you're listening for the absence of noise, right? And that, that is, I, I would imagine uh, it's in your chapter on dealing with ineffective behavior in meetings. So we don't have time to go into that, but Paul, I just want to thank you so much again for your transparency. Um, you know, I think all of those years when you were sitting being quiet, you clearly absorbed an awful lot of great stuff and had a lot of time to to churn on that and you have really put out a remarkable work um, in this book and uh, tremendously practical and you know for those who are either dealing with their own ineffectiveness in meetings or or just in conversation again i think you made a point earlier that when we learn to do this stuff well in our business life, we can also learn to do it well with our spouse and with our children and uh, you know, and other people that we come in contact with. So thank you so much for sharing yourself, uh, your story, um, you know, the, the details of this book. And again, the book that we have been talking about uh, has been Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations. And our guest has been Paul Axtell. Paul, would you tell folks how they can follow you, get in touch with you, um, so that if they want to learn more about this, uh, that they can get in touch with you? Uh, absolutely. Well, there's a website, which is just my name, paulaxtell.com. And they're also welcome to email me at paulaxtell at macmac.com. And uh, absolutely. People can contact me directly. Um, in fact, I'd like to offer everybody a free copy of each of the three books I've written. I think in particular, um, 10 Powerful Things to Say to Your Kids. People will love that book. It's the same ideas, just in a different mm. context. And so, and I don't work for an organization anymore, so I've got a lot of time, and I can take care of anybody who would like to interact with me. And thank you so much for the invitation to be with your audience, Chick. Well, I have really enjoyed it, Paul, and uh, just thank you so much, and I hope you, uh, I hope it stops raining at some point during the weekend, and uh, that you uh, just have a, a great long weekend. My, my husband took my uh, 16-year-old son deep sea fishing down in the Keys today, and uh, my 18-year-old daughter who just graduated from high school is still suffering from sleeping sickness, which apparently sets in after graduation. Nobody warned me. Oh. <laughs> so I'm going to enjoy the quiet. And uh, again, thank you so much uh, for sharing this book with us. And, and for those who've been listening, I hope you will go out and get a copy of this book and read it from both your own perspective and, and then share it with others who can help you uh, change the game in your company uh, and how you utilize meetings to actually get things done instead of planning for the next meeting. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. 
And if you'd like to learn more about the Game Changer Network, just go to thegamechanger.network. We just launched our site this week. We're still doing a few tweaks, but you can uh, join our audio membership and get uh, free access to commercial-free audio. We've got about 300 shows that you can listen to, listen to on a wide number of topics. And then we're going to be launching uh, some unique things this summer. So stay tuned, and thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.